Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6? I thought I was going to get through the first 11 verses, but we're going to get through one verse. It's hopeless. Every job in life that I've ever put my mind to or my body to takes much longer than I expected, except child-rearing, which is over much quicker than you would ever dream. Taylor has moved up to Indy and is gone as of this Sunday. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it's already a defeat for you, that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul has just been exhorting the believers at Corinth about where judgment should and shouldn't be done. He said judgment of those outside the church is reserved for God, but judgment inside the church is their responsibility. It's an obligation. It's a duty. You remember in the previous chapter, the Apostle Paul was addressing one of the many, many problems of the church in Corinth, and that particular problem was the fact that in their midst, they had a man who was living with his father's wife. So it's incest, a man with his father's wife. It's almost inconceivable to us today how this could be going on. It's not simply that they had a man like this in the church and that he was somewhat hidden from knowledge, public knowledge. In this case, it says that they were proud of it. Now, how on earth... Is it possible to be proud of a case of incest with a man having his father's wife and everybody's proud about it? Well, we all know how it's possible because we live in in Bloomington in the Northern Hemisphere in the postmodern time. And what we're all proud of is our tolerance. We're just so conceited about how tolerant we are. And that's exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. They're all very conceited about being tolerant. And so what they were were men and women claiming the name of Jesus Christ who were refusing to judge in the church an act of such wickedness that the Apostle Paul says even the pagans didn't do it. They were proud of their tolerance of such wickedness even the pagans didn't do it. 
And so the Apostle Paul is saying, you should be broken, you should be humble, but you're proud. This is going, you're proud. How, how does this work? Well, then he gets his brain into the brains and mind, into the hearts of the people that he's writing to, and he realizes how this happens. He realizes that one of the ways this happens is that they use the single verse that more than any other verse except maybe John 3.16 is known by everybody in the Northern Hemisphere today. Number one, Billy Graham did it, is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Number two is judge not lest you be judged. And so the way we always have to legitimate our sin, we always have to come up with an explanation why our sin is actually righteousness. And so the way they justified their wicked tolerance of terrible wickedness in their midst, the way they justified it was they said, well, didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged? And so the Apostle Paul is talking about their tolerance, their pride at this terrible wickedness. And he says, you should be ashamed. This is horrible. Then he says, when I wrote you and said, don't judge, I wasn't at all referring to to those in the church, I was telling you not to judge those outside the church. God will judge them. And and then he said, if you judge those outside the church, you can't stop at Speedway and get gas. You can't talk to your postman. You, You can't get your hair done. We live in the world. We're not to judge the world. God will handle the world. And then he says this, but are we not to judge those in the church? And of course, again, we make a big show of giving God what he commands and then doing the opposite of what he commands. And so judge not lest ye be judged. And so they're tolerant of wickedness in their midst and they judge the world and not the church. And people, this is always the way we are. We're always doing what God says to do in the place he says not to do it, making a big show. Don't you see how obedient I am? And then not doing the the thing that he says not to do in the place where he says, do do it. (laughs) Sounds like your kids, right? And so this is the church, you know. They're making a big show of judge not lest ye be judged. And so in the church, they don't judge such wickedness that the pagans don't do it. But outside in the world, oh, they're just filled with discernment and judgment and, and perceptions and, and wisdom and cultural critique and contextualization. And when it comes to the world, oh, they're very, very good at saying that God says no to you, Right? I have grown very weary of a magazine many of you love, and that's called World Magazine. And here's why I'm weary of World. World is owned and run by reformed men who know Scripture very well. And if you open up the pages of World, it's filled with judgment of the world. It's filled with judgment of, you know... Violation of the Constitution by politicians, corruption of politicians. It's filled with judgment of Hollywood, judgment of corporate interests, judgment of uh, dictators, judgment of the world. It's filled with judgment of the world, right? 
and no judgment of the church. Now, I suppose if you owned Newsweek, although is that defunct? If you owned Time, if you owned Salon, if you owned, you know, Google, the main news page for Google, I suppose it would be proper for you to judge the world because, after all, the people that are reading it are worldlings, right? Not Christians. But World Magazine? (laughs) Who subscribes to World Magazine? I guarantee you, not the people that write for uh, that, that, that wicked woman's blog. I don't want to mention it. You know, they're not pagans that read and subscribe to World Magazine. Pagans are not going to pay 50 or $75 a year to get a Christian critique of the world. It's Christians who subscribe to World Magazine. Okay. And so what does World Magazine do? Well, it does what every one of us preachers do. We get up in the pulpit and we talk about the wickedness of the world. Separate from the world. And we're very prophetic when it comes to Hollywood and when it comes to Washington, D.C. And when it comes to the corporate interests, when it comes to Indiana University, we're really prophetic. But when it comes to you, we hug you, we kiss you, and we milk you. We take your money and we make you feel superior to the world because the world's so evil and we give, we, we cut you slack on everything. There, there, you meant well. Thank you. Was that Curtis? It was such a deep laugh. I just feel strengthened when Curtis opens his voice. Seriously. And I know Marvin, the editor-in-chief of World, and a number of times years ago, a decade ago, I tried to get him to write pieces that are critical of the church. That's what the church needs today. But they won't do it. What do they do about the church? Well, they do puff pieces on diaconal work. Now, isn't that nice? You're critical of the world, and then in the church, you talk about how good it is to give money to save AIDS orphans in Africa and to do adoptions. And listen, if I preached to you like that, do you know how proud you'd be? If every sermon was me talking about what wonderful people you were and what wonderful godly work you do and and how I just love, you know, what do they say in the South? They say, oh, bless your heart. You know? I just love your hair. I just love your brain. Bless your heart. I just love your adoption. Bless your heart. Okay, now listen. The Apostle Paul is a father. And like every good father, he looks at his flock and he says, Listen, you have somebody who's sleeping with his You should be a shit. You're proud. You tell me. Judge not lest you be. I didn't tell you not to judge in the church. I said, don't judge the world. Are you not to judge in the church? And so he's dealing with his flock. And then all of a sudden it occurs to him. You know, while we're on this subject of judging, what's with you dudes? You're taking your financial disagreements to pagans to judge? How dare you? (laughs) And here we have a divine 
parenthetical statement. And that's what we're in chapter 6. While we're on the subject of judging, (laughs) here's another thing I have with you. You know, you guys should not be taking your financial disagreements in front of pagans, in front of unbelievers, in front of the wicked. You shouldn't be taking your neighbors in front of the wicked. What on earth is, how dare you? Now, I want you to focus on that word, dare, dare, dare. How do we use that word? We use that word to refer to something that takes an awful lot of guts to do. You know, I dare you to lift your hands when you go over the crest on the roller coaster. I dare you to light an M80 holding it. I double dare you to marry that woman. In other words, something that really is scary to do, you dare to do. Now, why would it be scary to take another believer into the courts, the secular courts? Why? Well, here's why. Because when we go into the secular courts, what we're saying to the secular courts is that It is not true that Christians are those who have died to this world and been born again into Jesus Christ and to holiness and to heaven. What we're doing is we're showing that we don't hate mammon and love God, but we hate God and love mammon. You know, those are the only two choices Jesus gave us. Either he will hate the one and love the first or love the, love the one and hate the first, all right? You can't serve both God and mammon, Jesus says. And so we go to court trying to get pagans to give us money from another brother in Christ. What we're showing is we're just like the world. We're worldlings. And what we really care about is our possessions, our money, and our pride. And sometimes our bitterness and resentment in cases of divorce. What we really, really care about is to be vindictive and to get back at people that got us. Or we just love money. And so the reason that it's how dare you, dare you, the reason is that it takes real guts to claim the name of Jesus Christ and then turn around and go into the courts and try to get something out of our brother or sister in Christ. Because what we're doing is we're saying, I'm a hypocrite. I claim the name of Jesus, but what really matters to me is money and pride and bitterness and envy and every, every, every single corruption, right? Who goes to court against another Christian? Somebody that doesn't give a rip about the the honor of Jesus Christ. You're going to go before a pagan and, and air your dirty laundry in a courtroom publicly to a pagan and ask him to make a judgment? How dare you? Well, it's not there at all because we we don't really have any vested interest in the honor of Jesus Christ. And so when somebody doesn't fulfill their obligations with us, we take them to court because what really matters to us is our reputation, our bitterness, and our money. And so we go into the courts. Remember that uh, Satan... And God spoke about God's servant, Job. You remember that? 
And what is said is that basically uh, the devil, Satan, wanted to show that Job's faith was insincere, that Job was a hypocrite. And so he, he received from God permission to torment Job. And of course, what Satan was desiring was that Job would show when tested that his faith wasn't sincere. And so Satan delights in showing the hypocrisy of Christians. He loves it when people who claim Christ, who have been baptized, who eat at this table, give full view to the world of our lust, of our greed, of our corruption, of our bitterness, because it dishonors the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what Satan is about. He loves it when we go to court. And that's why the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, dare you! And Satan's like, see that? I told you. There is no fear of God. God's Holy Spirit is impotent. He can't change anybody. Nobody's godly. Nobody's. We're all worldlings. See, they hate you as much as I hate you, God. That's what Satan's in it for. And so the Apostle Paul is absolutely furious. You know, when your dad says, dare you, it should make you tremble. You realize that you've done something that has taken him to the edge. Dare you. And that's where they're at. They've got this dude in their midst who has his father's wife. They're arrogant. They're tolerant. They're judged not lest you be judged. And now they're going to court against each other. Dare you, you know? And if you look at the text, you'll see that there are a couple other very interesting words there. His neighbor. That's similar to saying brother. And so it's referring to Christians, fellow Christians, you know? This is your neighbor, you know, the people that believe in Jesus and worship with you and are sharing the same physical space when we come to the Lord. Your neighbor, dare to go to law before, before whom? Huh? Before the unrighteous. And not before whom? The saints. And I have absolutely no idea if I'm using whom in the right way. I can never figure it out. So, okay, this must mean that you can separate everybody into one of two groups, right? You can separate people into either what? The unrighteous or saints. Now, how many of you, in referring to another Christian or to a group of Christians this past week, have said the saints? So why not? Why don't you call other Christian saints? As Christians, we believe that the Bible is inspired not simply in the concepts that are carried by the words, but in the words that carry the concepts. Don't ever believe that the Christian doctrine of Scripture is that the concepts communicate Christ despite the words. 
we believe in the plenary, which means every, verbal, which means word, that every word of Scripture is inspired. We don't simply believe that it carries the truth, but that every word is the truth. And so I'm constantly exhorting you, constantly exhorting you, to bring your language in conformity with the word of God. Don't just say that you believe and then talk the way a postmodern narcissist talks. Speak biblically. Speak biblically. Use biblical words. They're inspired. Use biblical words. Now, I'll come back to unrighteous and saints in a second. But let me start someplace else. A lot of the Bible translations today don't translate one of the words that's in this text this morning. What word is it? Well, if you have an NASB, a New American Standard Bible, which is the Bible we use here, and we use it because it's careful to keep the words, not just the concepts. All right? And if you look at an NASB, it says... In verse 9, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now, what does it mean to be effeminate? Do you know my entire life I've studied the word effeminate? Because I have noticed from the time I was in my 20s that it was verboten, prohibited to use the word effeminate. You're never supposed to use the word infeminate. But when I read dead Christians, I found that the word effeminate was used all the time. I found one of the uses was John Calvin writing about how timid Christians are. And he said, you Christians don't care about the honor of God. And so when somebody's preaching and they get passionate and angry and intense about the honor of God and sin, you go all like wobbly on them. And you begin to accuse them of sin for having zeal for the house of God and the honor of God. And he then says this <coughs> is to not sufficiently love God and his truth and glory. And he says, if you want to fault preachers for getting intense when they preach, then you should fault the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is also very intense about the honor and glory of God. And the Holy Spirit is very immoderate also. All right, you with me? And then he says, if you're a soft, effeminate man, then it will scandalize you when the Holy Spirit and his servants are zealous. If you're a soft, effeminate man. He says soft, effeminate men do get scandalized by zeal. I remember reading that 30 years ago, 35 years ago. And wow, it it was like Trino. It just shook me to the core. And I began to understand the culture I lived in. That it was completely given over to effeminacy, that there were no men left, that nobody had any zeal for God. 
And then I was encouraged to see that it's always been that way, that Calvin dealt with the same thing 500 years ago. And so I've studied this word effeminate. And I've watched it decline and decline and decline and decline. Until it's verboten, it's prohibited. You can't use the word effeminate today. Why? Well, because deep at the heart of postmodern culture is a hatred for distinctions. We hate distinctions. We hate the distinction between man and woman. We want people to be of a certain gender. And gender is not a biological bifurcation. It's a social role that one chooses someplace on a continuum. Are you with me? And so sex, which has to do with certain body parts, is thrown out in gender, which is sort of a linguist's kind of permeable plastic kind of. Well, what gender are you? Well, <laughs> my comfort level is mostly butch, but some mostly kind of like Prince, but a little bit of Mick Jack, but a little bit of like, thank you. But just a little bit of John Mellencamp too. And a lot of Bruce Springsteen when it comes time to ask a woman to marry me. But then when it comes time to father a child, a little bit of Prince. I'm telling you, postmoderns hate distinctions. Hate them. And so everything's plastic, and we think we can manipulate it. And so what we do is we are absolutely opposed to anybody that calls us back to man and woman to biological bifurcation. Are you with me? And so what Scripture says is that homosexuals will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we're fine with that because if somebody's going to... Now, not people that identify as homosexuals, but rather those who are um, tempted. You know, if, if somebody's going to give themselves to homosexuality, that's what the Bible means when it says homosexual, then that person will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. But there are lots of people that have a desire for same-sex intimacy, and, and they're not under God's judgment because that's just a desire. It's like a cultural thing. As long as they don't put wrong body parts together, we're cool. And so we teach everybody to just look at the continuum of sexuality. Way over there is woman, and way over there, and that's John Wayne, and that's uh, what's her name? The blonde, Marilyn Monroe. We got John Wayne over here. We got Marilyn Monroe. And when you're looking to get a husband, you're, you're Marilyn Monroe. And then you become Audrey Hepburn, you know, and you're John Wayne when you're looking to get a wife, and then you become Prince. Because after all, women who are married actually want a sensitive man. And men who are married actually need a controlling wife. I mean, every woman knows that. And what the Bible says is the effeminate and homosexuals. 
And you, you understand, a homosexual is one that puts the wrong body parts together. But what all evangelicals want to do is say that somebody that's just gay, <laughs> that just likes to get their flame on, you know, we shouldn't judge them. We should love the sinner, but hate the sin. And so homosexuality is a sin we hate. But effeminacy, we embrace that. As long as they don't put the wrong body parts together, you understand. And so what the new Bibles do is what? Come on, it's real predictable. The word effeminacy is gone. They don't translate it. Why? Well, because I don't even understand that. I mean, what's that about anyhow? You know? Every comedian knows, but, oh, a stupid Christians can't seem to get our brains around it. What a feminacy is. <laughs> I mean, come on. You know that comedians are all about a feminacy. They make fun of it. It's like hilarious, except when we bring it in the church, and then it's a scandal. And we go, I'm supposed to love the sinner but hate the sin. Homosexuals will not inherit the but, but effeminate guys. I mean, I kind of like having them as friends. I'm a singer. <laughs> Sadly, this pastor knows his flock. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to be around effeminate men. You know, because you can kind of have a relationship with a man without him barking at you. You know how real men burp and bark. You know what I mean by bark, you know? Real men, it's not really nice to have real men. Okay, so here we are. Are you with me? Postmodernism hates what? Every distinction, starting with sexual, biological, physiological bifurcation. And so it makes a continuum. Over there's Marilyn Monroe. Over here's John Wayne which both of them are just like completely bogus, right? <laughs> completely bogus. No Christian wants his daughter to be Marilyn Monroe, and no Christian wants his son to be John Wayne. Okay, what we want is Jesus and Mary. And Mary is not Marilyn Monroe, and Jesus is not John Wayne. Jesus wept. Did you just hear that? Okay. Now, the New Bible translations get rid of effeminate. And so you don't have to worry if, if you like to get your, what's that? Flame. You don't have to worry if you like to get your flame on. You know, you like to dress like little Lord Fauntleroy and talk to all the women about, you know, musicals. And like, like to watch uh, that movie I've still never seen. Um, what is it? Judy Garland's in it. What is it? Huh? Wizard of Oz. Thank you. Yeah. It's like the ultimate camp movie. Didn't you know that? Did some of you know that? Study your enemy. And so go back to verse 1. Do you remember? I'm trying to get you to see the word unrighteous and the word saint. 
and I'm, I've already gotten you to admit that you don't use the word saint anymore. Do you remember this? And I'm showing you at the end of the text that we don't use the word effeminate anymore, and the new Bibles, done by evangelicals, have removed that word from the text of Scripture. Okay? Now, what's the point? Well, here's the point. The point is there's a reason why you will not speak of the wicked and the righteous, because the word unrighteous is better translated wicked, right? Unrighteous is like, but wicked, that makes your hair stand on end, right? And there's a reason why we don't refer to ourselves and other Christians as saints. And what does the word saint mean? It means holy. It means set apart. It means heavenly. It means righteous, saint, agios. It means other. It means weird and peculiar. Okay? And the fact is, you don't want to stick out. And so what you do and what I do is run all over. We get, we get all tripped up trying to assure people that I'm just a sinner. You know, the church is just filled with sinners. You know, Paul says saints. Paul says holy. And we're just, oh, we're busy as beavers, you know. I'm a sinner just like you. Would you like to come be a sinner with me? I'm not threatening at all. I make no claim about you. As a matter of fact, I would fully admit that you're every bit as good as I am, but you know, Jesus loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life. And so we never refer to the church as saints and as holy. As a matter of fact, in reform circles, to speak of holiness is to be a pietist, which is bad, it's pejorative, or to be a moralist, which is even worse. Okay? And so there's just no labeling of anybody. Why would we want to divide ourselves from the world? Divisions are bad. We're very tolerant. You know? We're not different from you. We just love Jesus. And doesn't that feel better? I mean, I can just feel the weight coming off of me. You know? I go up to somebody, hi, my name's Tim Bailey. What do you do? Well, <laughs> I'm a pastor, but don't worry, I'm no better than you are. I sin. You know, I know I was just like making a complete, you know what of myself, complaining about what you just did as my cashier at Menards. But don't worry, Christian sin. Doesn't that feel better? <laughs> and so what? We give up the language of Scripture. Do you understand this? We do not expect ourselves to be holy. We will not be peculiar. We refuse to be weird. We will not be saints. We will not even feel the pressure of the name. We will not call anybody else a saint. And we certainly won't call those outside of the church unrighteous or wicked. Why? Well, because you need to be approachable. You know, how on earth do you expect somebody to become a Christian if you walk up to them and refer to them as unrighteous and tell them that judgment is coming? I mean, that's like repentance, and, and we can't do anything. God does it all. It's all of grace. Didn't you know that? I mean, we don't believe in God, the Holy Spirit, using the preaching of the word, bringing men under conviction, leading them into the kingdom. 
We refuse to recognize what Scripture shows as all through history the means that God uses to bring people into the kingdom. We have reduced the proclamation of the gospel to people sharing the good news that God loves you and has a wonderful man for your plan. Loves you and has a wonderful wife for your life. And that's about the extent of Christianity in America today. And of course we don't feel ashamed going to the secular court systems for justice against fellow believers, other saints. Because we don't feel the weight of sainthood. That's something Catholics do. Scandalous. Now listen. You know that when I write on the blog to teach you, I hope you read it because I write to teach you. You know when I write on the blog, I use the word sodomy. And most of you and everyone that reads the blog thinks that the reason I use the word sodomy is because I'm callous, insensitive, and condemnatory and feel superior towards people tempted by homosexuality. That's why I'd say sodomy. It's such a nasty word. I use the word after decades of not using the word because I'm convinced that until we begin to restore the shame of sexual perversion to the minds of our culture, that nobody will ever repent of it. We have to begin to speak as the Bible speaks. And then you'll see whether the Holy Spirit is present. Because if you discipline yourself to confess your faith in the words of Scripture, then there's no more of your manipulation and of your wonderful personality and your contextualization and your good looks and your vocabulary and your degrees and all this stuff we think is going to bring people into the kingdom of God. All of a sudden, it's you and Satan and the Holy Spirit will either save the person or they're lost. So what do you want to depend on? You want to depend on how you present the gospel? That make you feel better? Then forget the Holy Spirit. If it's in human wisdom, you have kissed off the Holy Spirit. If you refuse to use the language of Scripture, if you call a man out traveling, having an affair, instead of saying it's adultery, if you call a man who steals sexual favors from a woman before marrying her. If you call that uh, living together, you call that petting, instead of fornication, you've lost. If you call it being gay, or maybe instead of homosexual, effeminate, Sodomite. And you say, well, wait, it doesn't say sodomy here. I say, hey, there's a reality that's like an elephant in this room. In Sodom, they wanted to rape the man. And so God, for that, for their wicked inhospitality, for their arrogance, God poured fire and brimstone and burned them up. Now, if you're somebody tempted by the perversion of same-sex intimacy, 
What could be more wonderful than a Christian that refers to it as sodomy? Do you know who doesn't love homosexuals? The person that won't refer to them as if they've given themselves to it as a sodomite. That's the person that doesn't love homosexuals. The person that says gay is a person that couldn't give a rip about homosexuals. You understand that? Because the person who calls it gay is lying through their teeth. I've lived with a homosexual prostitute. <laughs> Me and him in his house, I've lived with him. I have known what go- I've heard him describe it. I've been there. And if you use the word gay for that, <laughs> it's like reality. It is absolute bondage on every level, starting at drug abuse and ending at depression and suicide. You want to say that to the children whose father has another woman when he's out traveling, that he's having an affair. You think that's how the children see it? Well, my dad has an affair. <laughs> no. The children are like, my father is wicked. My father has destroyed my mother. <laughs> so listen. Right at the beginning of this text, what I want you to do is I want you to see the word dare, the word saints, and the word unrighteous. And I want you to put yourself somewhere in those two places. I don't want you to find a continuum. And and like, I want you to put yourself either among the wicked or among the saints. You're one or the other. You can't be in the middle. And you say, yeah, but my next door neighbor defies God. And he's better to his wife than I am to mine. Right? I mean, isn't that what you're thinking right now? There's so many good men who defy God and will not worship Jesus Christ, right? And we should give credit to where credit is due. And he sees me complaining at Menards. He sees how I treat my... He's heard me yelling at her. I can't claim to be a saint. And I say to you, listen, listen. What matters more? whether you yell at your wife or whether a man worships the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. You're going to tell me that Christopher Hitchens is more righteous than you are? And his life is a life of defying God on as broad a stage as he can possibly get for himself. And you're going to tell me he's righteous, he's a saint, he's good? Listen, stop being a narcissist. Get your mind out of yourself. Stop being atomistic. Stop looking at the trees and not being able to see the forest. The very first thing that God commands is that you honor his son. And if you refuse to honor Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter how moral you are. You're completely an idolater. You are completely a rebel against God. And it really doesn't matter how many of the deck chairs you've put in place on the Titanic. Your entire life has been ripped open by rebellion against the God that made you. Do you understand this? Don't go around trying to ameliorate 
the tension of making distinctions in a postmodern world. We don't need you talking about how good your neighbor is, who shakes his fist at God. What we need is to pursue holiness. We need to be a city on a hill. We need to be men and women who are man and woman. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) And you know what I mean. And who are holy who won't have anything to do with strange flesh, who will not try to take the edge off of perversion, whether it's animals or members of the same sex or dead people or children or whatever it is. We don't need that. What we need is to be holy. And then let them envy us. Let them hate us. Let them hate us. No, you know what I'm going to say? No servant is greater than his master. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you too. Now, you don't pursue hatred, you pursue sainthood. But in a postmodern day where distinctions are hated, you know how surprised your children and your neighbors and your co-workers are going to be when they hit the judgment seat of the living God. And you've spent your life trying to blur distinctions and not be judgmental and not be self-righteous and, and just go along to get along. And then all of a sudden they hit the judgment seat of God. And what they see is a streaming line. It has no end that is broad and wide and many. And it's goats. Goat, 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 goat. And it's headed into the bottomless pit. That's what Jesus says. And then the few and narrow, the sheep. And they're headed into hell. And you haven't told them that it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment? You've lived your life trying to deny judgment? Now, listen, one final thing. Um, You guys know me well enough to know that what I try to do is I try to preach to myself. Most of you that know me know that when I talk about being rude to somebody who's the checkout line at Menards, it happened this week. Right? You knew that, right? Right? Yeah, Lizzie knew that. She's lived with us. Right? Most of you knew that, right? Okay, now listen, does that make you feel better? No. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. I keep trying to tell you, the true Christian can have no higher aspiration than daily to repent. And if some Christian has taught you that there's a higher aspiration, if you're really spiritual, you know, you can be truly sanctified and get away from all that repentance, they're devils from hell. The highest aspiration you can have as a Christian is to every week come and hear Scripture opened so that you begin 
to have your mind re and your heart and your body rejiggered to see God's standard, all right, through his word, and then you repent, and you eat at the table, and you have fellowship, and you sing, and you go out for the battle one more week. And then someday, you'll have a battlefield promotion, and you'll be in heaven. But when you get to heaven, you won't have to be horror-stricken at how you lied about God. You will have constantly presented the two ways, the broad path that leads to hell and the narrow path that leads to heaven. And nobody will say you lied about God and about the holiness of him and his people, okay? Okay? So don't be discouraged. Don't ever be discouraged because discouragement is a refusal to repent. Depression is a refusal to repent. This is not wrong what you're feeling now. Now take it to God. Be humble. Discouragement and depression are the responses of a proud man to a clear picture of the standard of God. A humble man says, oh, now I get it. Oh, for that too, Christ, you died for me. Okay? Okay. And then go and apologize to the cashier at Menards. <laughs> I will. No reason why you shouldn't. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus did not die for the righteous but sinners. We thank you, Father, that in your word you reveal to us our desperate need for the blood of Jesus Christ washing away all our sins. Father, would you please give us faith? Would you send your Holy Spirit to us and our children that we may believe in the mercy of Jesus Christ and that we may take that mercy, that repentance, that forgiveness to those that we love in this world that they might also repent and believe. Help us not to mince words, Father. Help us not to run from judgment and distinctions, but to give ourselves to them as you reveal them to us in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.